Because what you're talking about, what Randy's really talking about is this concept that I call long and strong. So if the muscle belly is contracting and it's not associated in the longest mechanism possible with the fascia that encases it, and you got to think of it as like it's, it's Russian dolls, right? So the entire muscle is encased in this fascia and individual bundles are, and then individual sarcomeres are encased in fascia. So the whole thing is like fascia, 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 until you get down to like the, you know, the little actin and myosin things, right? So fascia's everywhere. And what you want is you want no slack in the system because slack is slow, slack is an injury, slack is bad. It, and this is one of the reasons why like, if you're born with the big muscles, it's very different than if you had to pump up to build the muscles, mm -hmm. right? So the guy who's born with the big muscles, they're long and strong, he's the big cat, right? And the guy who pumped up in a weight room, he's slow and clunky. Right, unless he had the good fortune of you know, doing some correct things. That was biomechanist and inventor David Weck speaking on fascia, muscles, genetics, and training implications. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by Simply Faster. Simply Faster is an online athletic performance technology shop distributing items such as the free lap timing system, gym aware, K-Box, 1080 Sprint, and the Speed Mat. I've gotten many of these items from Simply Faster and can confidently say that they make today's best training technology available to everybody. The free lap timing system has revolutionized both my practices and my athlete assessments, allowing me to look at the 10 meter fly capability of dozens of athletes in a matter of seconds. It is wireless, compact, portable, and incredibly versatile. The K-Box and 1080 Sprint are fantastic tools for any coach looking to build speed, agility, and implement training scenarios that go beyond the traditional weight room. The 1080 Sprint is being used by great coaches training some of the fastest sprinters in the world, and it truly represents high-performance speed training. I can personally attest that Simply Faster's customer service is second to none. Christopher at Simply Faster responds quickly to queries, and anyone who makes a purchase from Simply Faster is in good hands. If you want to acquire some of the best high-tech training equipment available, stop by simplyfaster.com. That's simply with an I, faster.com. They are the future of coaching technology. Welcome to episode 117 of the Just Fly Performance Podcast. I'm your host, Joel Smith, and today on the show, we have biomechanist and inventor David Weck. Uh, so we had David on not too long ago, and I'm excited to have him back because, as always, uh, David sees movement not through the average lens. Uh, and uh, he is a guy who has definitely opened up and expanded my mind in terms of what to look for in, in athletes, what is good movement, um, what are some ways that we can use our body to be faster and more effective on the field of play. Part of the fun of this podcast has been seeing almost like my brain or my mind or my awareness like an onion, and um, it grows like there's these layers that that get tacked onto it. Uh, what I learned from great coaches and people who see human movement from a different perspective. Um, last time on the show, we talked about the coiling core versus the bracing core. In the sports performance industry, uh, things tend to revolve a little bit more around, I would say, uh, the lifts and the physical capacities to carry out the big lifts than they do, say, 
uh, a tennis swing or a baseball swing or a, a golf drive or throwing a football or even sprinting, to be honest, because sprinting is triplanar and rotational. And so anyways, that was that episode, and it was awesome. I would definitely recommend checking out episode 107, where uh, David talks about his dislike for things like bracing a transverse force, a.k.a. the Paloff Press. <laughs> uh, if nothing else on that episode, too, and I loved it, by the way. I uh, loved recording that. Um, David makes you think about why you are you have in your program the exercises you do. What are you trying to get out of them? And a barometer I've always used is, well, we know that neurological motor patterns are um, they're temporal, but they they have there's a stickiness to them. So if I practice a particular movement for a half hour, um, my running or whatever I do right after that half hour is going to reflect what I was just practicing and feeding my nervous system. And so if there's um, a movement in your program, you should be able to, in many cases, uh, do a skill right after that uh, and not have it diminish that skill. Uh, and, and not talking for fatigue here, just straight up nervous system and, and neural effects. Anyways, I don't want to get too far into that. I want to talk about what David and I are going to chat about today, which is really the forefront of David's uh, system right now. David runs a WEC method and and a topic that is, he's very passionate about is the use of the arms in sprinting. And it was actually one of the first things David and I, David and I connected on in our first phone call or chat where I was talking about the WEC 45 deadlift with him. And we both uh, had this common ground that the 90-90, arms fixed in 90, swing, swing back to front, hip to pocket, don't extend your arm past 90, this thing, the seated arm swing drill, right, that you always see. We were both, our mutual dislike for that was really the start of our uh, biomechanics chats. And, and anyways, today we're going to get into that. What, how do the arms and the whole body, honestly, as a coil, how does it work in running and locomotion? David's going to talk specifically on the fascial system and how to use the arms in a manner that taps into that fascial system. And as you heard in the teaser, it's a pretty important component of movement. It's vital. It's vital to be fast and to be your fastest. And this is true even to the point where David has invented these hand weights called pulsers that can really magnify and allow athletes to feel that fascial effect. And people run faster with them than without. It just shows how important that fascial effect is The combined with the coiling effect of the body and really what makes us fast. David's also going to touch on asymmetry and how to make it your friend and why we shouldn't always look to even both sides of the body out. Overall, just an awesome episode on movement and human performance. So let's get to it. Episode 117 with David Weck. David, welcome back to the show. Good to talk to you again. Joel, I am thrilled to be here. I love your show and I am so excited to be doing this episode with you. Yeah, well, hey, every time we talk, I definitely have new things to think about, new things to, um, every time I watch someone run or when I'm working out myself, it's like it, these new layers of awareness that always come into my mind. It's like, it's almost like you're, you're working out all over again. And um, always, that sense of, of um, self and joy in, in that context is always great. So I know this is going to be a great conversation today. And um, my, the main topic, or at least the first question is, Basically, when we very first talked, when I was calling you up about the WEC 45 deadlift, I, I think one of the, the places we found this common bond was talking about the 90-90 the arm swing, swinging pandemic, right? Like, swing mm-hmm. arms 90 degrees, swing arms 90 degrees. And I, I remember as a, as a young athlete, my 
coach um, a, a coach I won't say on what level so that coach isn't um, uh, what you what, what I don't know what the word is for but um, I was told you know your arms should be like this and 90 degrees and hand to pocket and I think I remember kind of maybe kind of makeshift trying it a couple times and I was like this doesn't feel good and then I just went and ran and forgot about it you know like I think a lot of athletes do anyways um, how do the arms actually work in high speed acceleration and running or what are some some attractors some traits of fast athletes and how we see their arms working well it's it really is um sort of uh let, let me preface this by saying that i this is a very big moment in history because now we have a, an objectively measurable superior way of using the arms that is not necessarily new, okay? So it ha it exists, and, and I'll, I'll talk about all this, but in terms of identifying it and then being able to train it, and then this method of training it also making you faster with an external load in the distal extremities, namely weights in or on your hands, you can run faster with them than without them now, really makes this an extraordinary event or monumental moment in the history of mankind and just the biomechanics of locomotion. And so with that, I hope I've enticed the listeners to, um, you know, to be very excited about this one, uh, this episode. So I'm going to go back to sort of the beginning when, when we had to carry sticks and stones. So when, when the ancestors and who knows, you know, how far back the hominid had to carry sticks and stones to get out you know, from the sanctuary of the canopy of the trees to venture out onto the high plains. Um, carrying a long stick of functional capacity, you cannot swing the arms. So that is not efficient. You can't do it. So what you have to do is you have to do what a even a moderately athletic person is going to do if you ask them to jog over here, right? They're going to do two things. They're going to land with their head over their foot each step, going to their core, and they're going to be pulsing both arms down that coincides with that event, right? The moment of maximum ground loading. And that's what you're going to see. And then what you're also going to see is that as that person, that athletic person will tend to now go into a sprint, they're going to transition at some point from that double down pulsing action to an arm swinging, because that's the construct that we are operating within where you know oh what do you do when you with your arms on your well of course you swing your arms they have to counterbalance your legs right and the reality is that the fastest of the fast and not every single one of them but the overwhelming majority and in different phases of a run all of them pulse their arms down when they are running slow or fast and if you think about it just sort of step back and ask the obvious question like, why would I want to be raising my arm or hand up prior to my foot going down and hitting the ground? Like, if the object is that I have to apply the load to the ground, why would I be taking a significant portion of my body's mass and be raising it up prior to that event? And if you look at it from that perspective, then it becomes extremely easy and obvious to say, well, gee, hmm. Maybe swinging my arms one up, one down the way it's instructed and the way it's always been taught is not, in fact, the best way to run, which it is not. 
And if you look at Deion Sanders is the best example out of any athlete that I've ever studied, and I've spent thousands of hours studying the film. He is the quintessential athlete who does or did the double-down pulse technique flawlessly. About as good as somebody could do it. Randy Moss is probably a close second. Lawrence Taylor, another. Daryl Green, another. Bob Hayes did it with his left hand. And Usain Bolt himself doesn't do it the way that Dion does it and Randy and these guys. He does it in a, in a manner that is actually a little bit less effective, but yet he does it all the same. So his hand is actually coming up as the elbow drives down, and the evidence is that the shoulder, boom, pops up at the top, and then, boom, it goes down and pops up at the top. Because we have to use the connective tissue to, 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 you know, to throw, to swing, it's very obvious, and to run, it's the same game. You need the connective tissue. And driving the hands down to coincide with that moment of maximum ground impact is going to send the jolt through your body that increases the ground loading force and then gets you off the ground faster with less muscular effort. And so you're faster all the way around. It feels better. It's more economical. There's less wear and tear and stress on your body, so much so that Deion Sanders never even stretched. Neither did Randy Moss because when you're really good at this, you're sort of like a big cat, and then you're just always poised to pounce. And I came into this information um, studying through the, the, the fight and the flight. It was the Marshall study where I sort of it gleaned upon me that, oh, my gosh, I, you don't swing your arms to run. You don't do it. And I had been in the swinging paradigm where I had been teaching this wind and whip action, which led to me making this new discovery, where I, when I, I worked with Tyson Gay, and he was doing something that you just can't do. It was even worse than swinging your arms, which was supinating on the downstroke. So <laughs> that's going to sort of take you off the line. You're, you're not, you know, you got to whip it with the pronation if you're going to swing it on the downstroke. The upstroke is where you put the supinate, and that's going to help you with the acceleration, deceleration, if you're using the muscles and swinging your arms. So it was through that process that I was like, it dawned on me when I discovered what I call the core fist. It's a bone structure alignment. I'm sure we'll make some notes or something so people can see some video on this stuff. But I discovered the posture that sort of resolves the distal extremity in the position of an empty-handed fist where you triangulate the bone structure by flexing at the PIP joint, that's the proximal interphalange joint for all the geeks out there who probably already know that, as opposed to letting the DIP joint uh, flex. And when I hit that position, it instantly dawned on me that, oh, wow, I can strike the ground with my upper body, both hands, the one coming forward as well as the one coming back, and I'm faster, and I was instantly faster. And then the dilemma was I can't teach this to anybody because when the pressure's on, how the heck do you repattern you know, something that you're doing 4.5 to 5 times per second? Oh, just don't swing your arms. Do this instead. Well, okay, that doesn't really work when somebody actually has to go fast. You're going to do what you do when you have to go fast. So anyway, that's, that's sort of a preface or preamble to the subject matter, and now we can drill into it. Um, and uh, I'll let you have at it, and so you know, I'm not – you know going on and on. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I really, a couple like kind of uh, vivid pictures came to mind as you were describing a few things, uh, one of which was running with the spear. Like, I feel like it's a very primal thing in all of us. Like, you're a kid and you're running, you, you have a toy or a stick that you picked up and you're pretending like you're running around in a spear, right? But like, you, 
you think about like like a, a tribesman with a spear or maybe maybe you've seen the movies i don't know if this was ever in maybe like the movie 300 or or, or you know 300 but you have this picture of a soldier running with a shield and a sword or a spear and there's that downwards there's that downwards motion as they're running forward it's this up and down driven through the arms motion and it's a very powerful run it's uh like a, the 90-90 just swing front to back with the elbows fixed is probably the weakest way you could possibly run. And to me, it, it was funny. I was even talking uh, with a biomechanics PhD um, just the other day, and he was I had a background in track and field, and he was like, you know, I, I felt like I was always running faster with the baton in my hand in the relay. And, <laughs> <laughs> right? And we're going to get into that, right? And just, just the fact that there is something that, causes a, a feedback to pressing down is is so powerful and so you you mentioned the double down and, and i know obviously this is a a, a biomechanics uh, discussion a we are having an auditory discussion we're discussing kinesthetic and visual things and so for people listening in their car um what's the best way you can describe the double down if you had to you know talk talk about the nutshell version of what that is exactly the double down pulse uh, what okay. is happening there Okay, so, so let me just say that Apocalypto is a movie where there's a few scenes in Apocalypto where you sort of see that primitive and the actors, you know, really know how to move their body. So, <laughs> so you'll see the head over foot coil, right, in which, you know, I think we talked about that in episode 107. People can go back to listen to um, and that the double down pulse. So basically what's happening in the double down pulse is it goes hand in hand with the head over foot technique. And the coiling core, because let's let's use your right foot. So so your right foot is the one that's going to be striking the ground next. So basically, what has to happen is in the air, you need to set it up so that you're there when you get there. Meaning you you have to have your head positioned over your foot when you land. Like that's the whole point. That's that's how you have the balance and the maximum triplanar integration, so that the you know the the extension and the flexion are powered by the frontal and the transverse. And it's the it's sort of this cascade of frontal plane flexion first that sort of turns the spinal engine on and that, that associated axial counter-rotation in the transverse plane that gets your head over there and the shoulder now goes lower, which brings the hip up, which makes your foot travel further in the air and you're still on top of it, you're not overstriding. This is how fast people run. And now at that event, what you what both hands are going down and what they do is, is you're using the lats, the, the pecs, the body weight to, to drive it down. And then the instant before maximum ground loading, the hands stop their downward movement, not by a muscular effort, but by this fascial connective tissue effort. And even your traps in your neck come into play in the recoil. So the biceps, the brachialis, the brachioradialis, all the extensors in the forearm, all of those can be sort of used without being used to, to sort of create a pressure jolt from the downward action of your body weight, your lats, your chest, your triceps, and it's on the hand coming forward, because that's your right hand when your right foot's hitting, so it's an ipsilateral event that's going to give you this extra jolt of force that just makes you faster. And, and, and the listeners, 
you can you can sort of picture yourself, right? Because most listeners here are athletic enough that they're they're not going to listen to the pose running advice or the chi running advice. You know, fall forward and pull with your hamstrings, and you know that it, it, that silly nonsense that literally goes extinct after this. So, the 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 athletic person jogging slowly, right? So so somebody like try it if you're listening to this, just jog across the room, right? And just do it slowly. You're gonna you're gonna and pay attention to what your hands want to do. Your hands don't want to swing. Your hands want to go with your body. And your hand, your right hand, immediately prior to the right foot landing, is going down, and then it's going to, bing, pulse back up. And what's really, really interesting about this is we are dealing in micro, microseconds, but the body is naturally geared to find it. So this is all happening faster than the speed of thought. So you can't think your way through this. It's a sensation that you're going to feel. And if we break the ground loading phase into three components, so we're going to say, okay, you, first you have to land, and then you have to load. We're going to call load the maximum load, and then you have to launch. So you have this preface to the load, which is the land, and that's the initiation of ground contact on the green dot, which is, for anybody who doesn't know the green dot, it's the fourth and fifth metatarsals right behind the fourth and fifth toes. That's going to be the athletic initiation point that sets the foot up. It's sort of like the penultimate setup before you get to the, you know, to the medial side of the foot and off, you know, off toward the big toe. And then at maximum landing, you're already having stopped the arms and they're going up. But your hands have to be going down after you've landed. So you're initiating the ground contact. And the hand is still going down. And then before you maximum load, the hand is going up. And so what that means is that if you're running fast, and let's just use an easy number, one-tenth of a second, let's just, and let's just divide it in half and pretend that load happens in no time. It's just one singular event, point on the graph. So you got 0.05 seconds, that's five one-hundredths of a second of land, and you have to be going down after you've initiated it and then be going up before you get to maximum load. So you got five one hundredths of a second with which you got to stop and send the hand up in the other direction because the force of that downward recoiled back up jolt from the upper body, from that right hand, that has to travel through your body and that takes some amount of time. And this all happens naturally when you do it, like when, when you figure it out, right? And it's extremely difficult to figure out until now because of my greatest invention ever. <laughs> These things called propulse pulsers because they're, they're weights with a shifting load inside and they're designed to have the right timing of the shifting material. If, you don't, if, the, if the shifting material shifts too fast, well then it's, it's, the frequency isn't right to, to capture the force. And if it shifts too slow, well then you know it doesn't work either. But the shifting weight means that that hand weight weighs absolutely nothing, essentially, for literally like microseconds. That lets you stop it just as fast as if you didn't have it. And then that weight comes down and all that inertia that's been zeroed out, boom, it creates this giant jolt that is many times more than the weight itself that disappears and goes to zero again instantly and you hit the ground with greater force and you go faster with the weights and you hear it and you feel it and there's a training effect where you're faster 
without it, having trained it now because you've repatterned your gait cycle in your sprint. So you're fast and then you, so you know the pattern and then just like lifting weights and doing power cleans, if you start with 135 pounds and now you get to 185 pounds, just stronger, same kind of deal happens here. And you're faster with them than without them, which is really the extraordinary thing that's gonna, it's gonna throw sort of a monkey wrench into the whole equation. Because right now in track and field, you know, there's certain rules, but there's no rule that says you can't carry weights. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast, brought to you by Simply Faster. Yeah, um, so some interesting, one, one thing you said, something you said was really cool. Uh, you were talking about the arm swing, the downswing, and I think about uh, Charlie Francis, there's a video of Charlie Francis uh, being very vehement that the arms don't work front to back, they go down, like he's, he's doing this downward, almost karate chop type motion, and... I, what you were saying about the, it's a very, it's not complete. Like that extension of the bottom isn't complete. It has to be a little incomplete so that yes, yes. it can like snap back. Um, and what I've found is it's almost like I, I think about, it's almost like punching, doing boxing, work on a bag. And I know you're experienced in the martial arts. And like, if you're doing a jab that you have to, you have to use your breath and that, that, hand has to return to you very quickly but it's not like it's the muscles returning that jab to you it's if it was your your bicep would get pretty sore like it's it's just that fascial winding and returning when you're when you're doing that it makes me actually think of alan wells who a big part of what he was doing is working the punching bag back in the 80s and part of me wonders i don't know if i've watched him run but actually i kind of wonder now if you would see that show up in his running And, and i think about the way i can kind of frame and think about that double down is it almost you know if, if you're driving in the car and you're trying to kind of see it in your mind's eye or even just the way the arms work at the bottom it's almost as if like there's obviously you're not punching there's it's there's a there's a forward like chopping i mean not, it's not a front to back swing it's a downward-esque swing it's not a punch but it's almost the way the arm hits at the bottom is very similar the way i see it to that that punch and recoil where it doesn't completely extend um i think you would say that's pretty accurate right well, here's what's interesting about that. So let, let's look at like the jab and the cross, because those are sort of the, the punches that we'd extend with. The, you think of that like extension, you got to bring it way back, break in real quick, right? So with that punch, the, the idea is you do have to go as long as possible to get the range. So what you're going to do is you're going to snap with pronation. So at the end of that punch, there's a, there's a bink, like there's a pronating snap that puts an extra whip on the punch and it gets you longer and it's gonna recoil back better too. So you're using sort of the structure in that manner and it is on what we'll call for all intents and purposes, horizontal versus vertical. Now with the pulsing of the hands, what you wanna think of is the hand that's coming forward, it has to be coming down and then pulse back up. You're attacking the ground with the heel of your hand. So it's, it's, it's the heel of your hand on the pinky side is you're, you're thinking of doing like a palm strike downward and you're exactly right. You can't straighten the arm because now you're not gonna get the connective tissue recoil and you can't, you don't have time to pronate and snap it to have it come back up because that would be too low and too far. So it's this, it's almost as if you were, if you were gonna do it as a punch, you would extend out with a heel strike to the nose and bring it back in before it would straighten out. If, if you were gonna sort of equate the punch with the pulse. And then with the hand that's coming uh, 
back, right? That's the one that, you know, the cue, you know, drop the hammer, right? Or whatever other cue, you know, the coach has given when they were teaching one up, one down. It, the good ones are teaching down and the bad ones were teaching back and forth mm -hmm. because back and forth is not right, right? Yes. <laughs> but the, the, key, the key to the one that's going to come back is that you don't want the humorous to come forward. And you want the elbow to get as acute as you possibly can so that now you don't have to use your muscles to, to bring it down again. So if you watch the good ones, the, the elbow creases and, and the humerus might not even be vertical. So it might be if you were to drop a vertical line, the, the, the humerus is not going to cross that vertical line in the center of the body. If, because any any forward action is just you're not as strong to drop your weight now. If the, I mean, just think about it. have your buddy, you know, put your elbow forward of your body and have your buddy like hold you and try to lift your body. But now put your elbow like in line with your center line, and you know you you can lift your whole body on that elbow. And so you want that 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 sharp acute angle of the elbow after it has come forward and it's bounced up. And now when you drop it, you're dropping it down again, same thing, but you've got the tricep and the humerus is already going back. So you're not taking your lat and having to pull the humerus backward. You're using your weight to go boom and, and get it down so that it pops up again. And if, if you think about one of the other sort of consequential aspects of when the hand has recoiled back up and it's now behind you setting up to come forward again is the consequence on what that action is going to have on your ability to flex that that leg right to carry it through right and get the the long cycle so that the foot is traveling more distance in less time to create a greater strike and the key to that is the hips so you can't run with a neutral pelvis and expect to be fast at all. And even, even this idea that, oh, well, tall sprinter's posture is, the, you know, the pelvis is tucked under and, you know, you're, it, it's, it's predisposed on this concept of neutral. And so really what's happening is it's, a, it's an alternating. There's a lordotic kyphotic and then it switches. Lordotic kyphotic, lordotic kyphotic. And the fastest people have a big lordotic. <laughs> because it makes you springier and now the frontal plane flexion creates a greater degree of axial rotation and the foot that's extended it's just hit the ground well that hip is going down and backward and there's a there's a kyphotic effect on the lumbar spine on that side whilst you're coiling to the other side as it's in the air preparing to hit the ground and there's a lordotic effect on that side of the spine and the problem is is that you sort of Nobody, nobody's really, before now, I guess, just taken the time that it takes and looked at it from the perspective of we need to see this from the front to really understand what's going on. Because when you look at it from the side, it doesn't look like, it, it just doesn't look, it looks like neutral from the side. I'll tell you, a funny story is Marlon Bird is, is a dear friend of mine. He was a 15-year Major League Baseball player, and he trains WEC Method up in Calabasas with you know, all these kids, and he's making them super fast. And there's this sort of like, uh, I don't know, apprehension from people about like, wait a minute, what are you trying to teach my kid? Like he had this family where the, the, the mother was like a former Olympic sprinter from Britain and the father is like a baseball player. And they said, you know, the kid came to practice and said, you know, Marlon, my, my parents aren't going to let me 
trained running the way you're teaching it to me because I tried to explain it to them and they said it's all wrong. And Marlon's like, uh, okay, so Marlon talked to them. And he's like, okay, well, I want you to watch a video of Usain Bolt and see the way he coils his core and go, you know, that lateral movement side to side. And the, these parents said, well, we've watched Usain Bolt and he keeps his head straight in the middle. And he's like, okay, wait a minute. Like, it's impossible to interpret the video. What they did was they watched him from the side and you can't see it from the side. And, and, and from the side is, think about like, you know, historically speaking, you're looking at the start from the side to see the acceleration angle, right? I mean, so, okay, well, what's the angle of the shin and what's, you know, what's the distance of the step? I mean, you see all that from the side, so you need to look at it from the side. But if you're gonna understand it even to a greater extent to make all those angles come off so that you can witness them from the side, you gotta look at it from the front where we see that frontal plane flexion. And we have to understand that that is ideal and optimal, and it's not lateral sway in a bad word, right? And so that that whole aspect of it is, it's all happening so fast. The human eye cannot pick it up. And they, when I'm working with somebody, I video every single rep because I, I need to look at it. And I have, you know, fortunately, what used to cost thousands of dollars and take a lot of time is now an iPad and an app. Mm -hmm. Right. Okay. Well, let's look at what you did. <laughs> and, and, and then I like to even time people in practice with the video, right? So, so now there's no finger aberration. You just look at it, cue up this rep with that rep camera hasn't moved. And now, you know, okay, get, you know, 250 frames per second. Let's see when the back heel, you know, begins its jolt back, which is really the first move that you're going to see. Okay, well now we know rep over rep, it's exactly the same timing from when your body actually moved. Now that doesn't factor in reaction time as such, but I'm talking about just the biomechanics of it. And then you can see the increased stride length of when we teach somebody how to double down pulse. You know, and, and you can see the angles are better and you can see all this stuff. And you know, in that sense, the, the camera's never gonna lie, but it can be misinterpreted but the clock itself never lies. And you know, rep over rep, if you're six feet in front of yourself at the end of 120 meters, well, that's a lot faster. And then, and then back to Marlon Bird, he, 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 took, uh, he took this other kid, a junior in high school who's baseball, and he's running the 60 yard dash. And he says to his coach, he says, coach, can I carry these weights? You know, it's holding the pulse. Can I carry them to run this, this, you know, this test? And the coach says, no, of course not. Scientifically proven, you can't run faster with weights, kid. So no, you're not gonna carry them. And the kid said, all right, well, if I run the first rep without them, can I run the second rep with them? And the coach like humors him, okay, fine, kid, whatever. You know, run the second rep with them. And so he runs a seven seconds on the first rep and then he runs a six, seven on the second rep with the weights. And now all of a sudden the coaches up there are going like, oh, <laughs> oh, this actually does work. Right, so, so there's this great apprehension from the industry to evolve because new is threatening and new is, can also represent displacement. Like, hey, if I'm teaching 90-90, cheek to cheek, sit you on your butt with your legs out straight on the ground, and now, guys, you know, it's 90-90, cheek to cheek. It's like one of the dumbest exercises there ever <laughs> was because you, you, can't, you can't coil that way and your arms are inefficient and slow, and yet how many people have taught that drill? I mean, I've seen that at the Olympic Training Center. <laughs> you know, I mean, like, okay. And so, again, it's it's a very sort of interesting time, and 
the, the truth is the truth. So, I mean, what we're talking about here, who cares? I mean, we're going to see it evolve one way or the other, right? If Fosbury flop, it either is higher or it's not, right? So we can talk about it until we're blue in the face, which is so much fun. And I love to geek out. You love to geek out. And your listeners love to geek out. Right? We absolutely love it. And you and I have had offline conversations where it's like, oh, David, I got to go. My kid's like, you know, my, my, my wife needs me, <laughs> right? Where we love talking about it. And what I love about you and I love about your podcast is that you, first of all, you have the physical capability to vet and test the truth, right? So feeling is knowing and you're a good enough athlete, better athlete than me, who can feel truth, right? And that's your first precursor and then you work with an athlete you give them a cue oh okay did we get a result or not and so you have that sort of ability and then you're open-minded and you're not afraid which is like just a breath of fresh air you're not afraid because so many people are terrified that if i'm teaching wrong i'll you know so they just keep teaching wrong and it's crazy yeah i um yeah, there's a lot of really interesting things with the arms and, and cool things that you had just said that make a lot of sense to me. And it's like the more I go through, um, the more I learn from a lot of different people and, and organizations, even things like um, like Postural Restoration Institute, which I feel like is really pioneering um, a lot of the corrective and rehab, just the way the human body works in general, too, in the strength and conditioning field. You see the similarities. Um, you mentioned like the the head going bobbing side to side in the frontal plane and the frontal plane is so interesting because I, I finally have realized it took me way too long to get this <laughs> but basically everyone can move in the sagittal everyone can rotate but it's like unless you have a good frontal plane the linking of the two might not be very good <laughs> and and uh just how important that is in, in really creating that that side bending action that allows you to take full advantage of that coiling core and seeing that in action is, is such a, a powerful thing uh, I, I like the, the fascial system is so cool and, and this is where I yeah I can kind of share uh, you know anecdotes obviously I got the, the pulsers myself um, and ran faster in a 10 meter fly with them and ran faster in the 30 meter dash with just one because I had to use one hand to start the timer with <laughs> but I actually think that was almost better and maybe when we get to asymmetry I can explain why uh, but if you know if nothing else outside of it making you know if they said I couldn't use them in a race or whatever, I've still learned a lot even with notwithstanding about how the human body works and how the the body will tap into the fascial system. And, and yeah, like I've I've had an experience too where um, a, a young lady, you know, 12 or 13, or uh, typically kids at that age, right, are very sloppy through, well, this is what we typically would say, right, if your arms aren't good. Uh, and this is probably what I would have said um, five years ago, I guess, maybe even two years ago, is that if your arms are sloppy, uh, you know, I've had coaches come to me who have kids who have sloppy arms and say, well, they need to do more arm curls. <laughs> like they need to do more, they need to do more arms in the weight room because their arms are bad. Uh, and then the more educated answer that I would have given at the time is, well, your arms are falling apart and they're falling apart at the end of the race because, uh, your trunk's weak. Well, let's, let's do more trunk work in the weight room. Let's do more core. And I don't know, let's bust out the kettlebells or the, you know, the physio ball and, and, and do some stir the pot or I don't know, you know, that would have been like the answer. And you know, there may be some good value. I'm not saying that stuff isn't valuable at all. I think there is value to that, but, um, it just through kind of being, and, and I view the, the pulsers as it's like the gateway to teach that double down and, and to, to link people into the fascial system. 
and so it, it's yeah there's a, a anecdote where the 12 13 year old girl um long jumping and a girl whose arms roll over the place you put those put just some four ounce i think they're four or six ounce pulsars in her hand and she just jumps two feet farther and her running looks way better like everything is cleaned up and her foot strike is even better and and that's where the hands are intimately linked with the feet and but it's like this is a person who i would have said um look like you need to do more core work you'll you'll just grow and mature and your core is going to get better and it will i'm sure it's not like you know totally out of the equation but being able seeing the power of the fascial transport system it also brings me to something that randy huntington said a few episodes back which was a tremendous episode and just saying like just looking at the body in a different way and i've gotten to this place where i do start to view the body a little bit as as um nerves and joints and fascia and muscles and not really like holding the muscle system in the highest esteem like a lot of people do because once you can you know we everyone we always talk about anatomy well everyone talks about oh have you read anatomy trains and i think when people say that they really mean have you just looked at a couple pictures in there <laughs> you know like <laughs> <You're funny. laughs> like but i mean it's true i mean i i tried to read that book and it just confused the shit out of me like honestly i mean i was i mean i don't know maybe i could go back and i only say that in the sense of like the minutia just wasn't giving me the big picture but then you look at the the pictures and you're like i get it we're connected our body's wrapped in this these fascial trains and obviously the guy that wrote it's a total genius and i have full respect for that uh but it's like once we can and randy was just saying like it's not so much about and i, and I hope i can quote this right with what he said but it's not about so much about the power of the muscles themselves in a raw sense but more the muscles ability to produce the appropriate amount of force on the fascia to engage the skeletal system um, obviously powerful muscle is very important, but it's more about the, the muscle and fascial relationships is so critical. And that's why you know, obviously you don't, just cause you have a bigger squat doesn't mean you're faster. Just cause you improve the power of a muscle doesn't make you a faster human being. Anyways, that was standing. Um, it's definitely been a good teaching tool for me and learning about tapping into that fascial system in the downward and, and downforce and, and putting more downforce into the ground as well. And not just thinking, I think it's like, for some reason, we just think about the arms as these things that counterbalance the legs, and that's all they do. <laughs> and right. I, I think that right. couldn't be further from the truth. Um, yeah, let, let, me, uh, let me say a few things about that. Because first of all, Randy Huntington is great. He's a, he's a very good friend of mine. And years and years ago, I spent a lot of time with him, sort of just trailing him, absorbing uh, you know his his knowledge, and so I learned a lot with Grant, Randy, and I think very highly of him. Um, and fascia, so fascia, right? Fascia, fascia, fascia. It's a very sexy term. Uh, it's very mysterious, which because it is mysterious. And one of the world's foremost researchers in this subject is Robert Schleif, and so he is one of the guys who's organizing these fascial congresses and these fascial congresses. Like I, you know, I have them on videotape, and I've spent all the hours watching them and stuff. Robert uh, is doing like the the research, and with the thing about fascia is you really need to do in vivo research because a dead body, the fascia behaves completely differently than in a live body. So, uh, in a live body, the idea is that it's almost like this gelatinous like snot-like structure that when you apply a force to it, it's not, you know, it's reactive. It's not contractive, it's reactive. So it only contracts, you know, in response to a force. It in, almost instantaneously sets up with this triangulation of this snot into like this spider web that becomes, you know, like it, 
like surface tension of water kind of a deal, right? If you put enough, like, you know, I don't know, whatever stuff in water or your kids make slime with the with Elmer's glue and borax and stuff, if you lean into it, you go right through it. If you try to walk on it, you go, you sink right in. But if you hit it hard, it bounces like a Super Bowl. And so the fascia is sort of like that. And Robert Schleip has the propulsed pulsers. And so, you know, he heard about it, right? Purchased them. We sent them all the way to Germany. And I put a nice little handwritten note in there. And first thing he said was, I feel it, right? I feel, I feel the spring. I feel the spring mechanism of like, boom, the fascia. And it's with, with, he, with him doing the research, it's really interesting because I just sort of try to use common sense to put things together. And the way I look at the fascia, and I could be right, I could be wrong. I don't, you know, and in a sense, it doesn't matter because faster is faster, but it's fun to try to figure out causal factors. But I look at the fascia as having its own intelligence. So the fascia is where you house the most proprioceptors, and they're much more neurally sensitive than the muscles themselves. Okay, so that's pretty much proven through research. But I look at it as if you apply the mechanical force to the fascia, you don't even need to send the signal to the spinal cord to send the signal back to the fascia to, to sort of set up and do its job. I think it's just like you hit the hammer, you hit the nail with the hammer and bang, you know, it's happening there then. And so in a sense, it's faster than the electrical current that goes through your body is my supposition. It's like, okay, well, it's a structure that applies that, you know, responds to the force directly. So you don't even need to do anything with it. Now, it, all its positioning and proprioceptors will, will give, inform your body on where it is in space, and so those signals are being sent all the time. But I think the, you know, the force that you're able to create with it is just an immediate thing, and I think it's just a factor of the tissue itself responding to the force. And then you said something interesting about sort of arm curls, right? So because everything that I do is basically geared toward I want to move better, right? So, and I think there are certain reasons why you should exercise. Like, if you have an aesthetic goal, like you want to bodybuild and have bigger biceps, well, then I think you should do your concentration curls and your other curls and your, you know, pulley curls and do curls until your biceps are busted up and they get so big, right? <laughs> Create as much trauma as you can and then, you know, take your steroids and get big, right? But I will never teach anybody a supinated curl position because. What you're talking about, what Randy's really talking about, is this concept that I call long and strong. So if the muscle belly is contracting and it's not associated in the longest mechanism possible with the fascia that encases it, and you got to think of it as like it's, it's Russian dolls, right? So the entire muscle is encased in this fascia, and individual bundles are, and then individual sarcomeres are encased in fascia. So the whole thing is like fascia, 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 fascia until you get down to like the, you know, the little actin and myosin things, right? So fascia's everywhere. And what you want is you want no slack in the system because slack is slow, slack is an injury, slack is bad. And so Randy's absolutely right. It, and this is one of the reasons why like, if you're born with the big muscles, it's very different than if you had to pump up to build the muscles, mm -hmm. right? So the guy who's born with the big muscles, they're long and strong, he's the big cat, right? And the guy who pumped up in a weight room He's slow and clunky, right? Unless he had the good fortune of, you know, doing some correct things, right? And so, like you always say, stronger is not necessarily faster or more powerful, or, and there's a diminishing return to stronger as well. So you got to keep your eyes on the prize and realize that, you know, if picking up the absolute heaviest barbell is your sort of goal, 
well, then you're going to get slower at some point in that process, right? So, you know, they, they coincide, and then, and then picking up 900 pounds, you're not getting faster from doing that. You're getting slower. So, um, and then the last thing I want to say about this is sort of the bones. See, I have this theory about the bones. And again, this is all just conjecture and supposition. And, you know, if it's right, it's right. If it's wrong, it's wrong. And, and who cares? <laughs> faster is faster. And by digging into it this way and being fearless in terms of, you know, making an incorrect hypothesis, like, who cares? Right? If I'm wrong, I'm wrong. If I'm right, I'm right. And if I'm right, well, hey, now we got better information. But if you think of the skeletal system, right? Compare your body to a bow and arrow, right? To a bow. And think about where the power comes from with a bow. Is it the string that gives it the power or is it the actual bow itself that gives it its power? Now think of a human body and think of sort of the arc of development growth. So you're, you're, you're young and your bones are like rubber. It's like, you know, soaked a chicken bone in vinegar and you can bend the thing any which way you want, right? So it's very forgiving when you fall down. Right. And then you think of like when you're 45 or 50, you think, oh, and then, you know, 80, your bones are now real brittle. But I think there's a sweet spot in there. You know, when you're 18 years old up to maybe 30, when their bones are bouncy, because you could be a lot stronger at 42 years old than you were at 26. But you sure ain't jumping higher and you ain't faster when you're stronger at 46 than you were at 26. Because I think it's your bones. I think the bones are the priority. I think the bones are what ultimately like separates you. And in terms of like this, yes, the muscles are important. Yes, it's all important, right? But really, what you're serving is you're serving the bones because the bones are the architecture, right? So without the bones, you're a jellyfish, and you ain't going nowhere, right? You got to be floating to go somewhere, right? So with the bone structure, I think you know we have to build on the bone structure. And that is really our truest form of the derivation of power. And then, you know, obviously the lever points that we all know about, this guy has a better leverage, you know, and plus, and, you know, this guy's calf is, you know, this guy's calf is tiny and his Achilles tendon is huge, long, and, you know, he's got tiny feet, so therefore he's jumping out of the gym, whereas, you know, the, the Nordic guy who's wearing a kilt, his calf is down at his ankle and it's, you know, it's, it's you know, 22 inches thick. So he's not jumping through the gym, right? So th those are sort of my feedback on those things. Oh, and then last thing, right, last thing, connective tissue. When we look at swinging and we look at throwing, the contribution of connective tissue could not be more obvious. Throwing being the best example, right? So examine throwing, the overhand throwing motion, and you're going to see an arm that looks like it's, you know, shouldn't be happening if you if you take a frame by frame. You're going to see the bones bending, okay? And you're going to see like, whoa, how the hell is the human body even doing that, right? And then with with swinging. You can't have any slack in the system, and so like you're anchored in, you're rooted in, and it's your whole body, boom, right? And it's supination and pronation, and bang, the ball goes flying. But in running, the same rules with the body apply. It has to be a connective tissue situation. And you, what you want to think of is you don't want to think of the muscles as, as these things that elongate and contract – you want them to do that without any restriction, like we talk about the hamstring, right? The only time the hamstring should be on in running is that 
virtually isometric jolt on the ground and then turn that damn thing off, let it contract and lengthen under no stress whatsoever so it can be extremely fast and injury-free, right? And you want the muscles to think of them as a pressure system. You are a hydraulic machine. Hydraulic is water. You have pneumatics, which is the lung and the breathing that will enhance the pressure of the pneumatic. Watch Usain Bolt when he's driving on that right leg, his power leg, you know, he has that, like his cheeks puff out like he's Louis Armstrong on a trumpet, right? Tyson Gay, it's the other side, his left leg. And you can see the breathing with it, right? They're pressurizing, but it's a hydraulic system. And you want to think in terms of every movement, you know, when it's the least amount of time on the ground and most pressure, force pressure, you want it to be, for all intents and purposes, isometric with the muscles so that you're, you're just pressurizing the internal belly such that the flow and the force can go through the connective tissue. And that is what happens with these propulsed pulsers is I'm 48 years old, Joel. I, I'm riddled with injuries from football surgeries, a replaced hip, and the trauma from the hip replacement cut some nerves that you know gave me a sports hernia. And I'm fast. <laughs> like, like I don't and, and I don't stretch. I'm lazy. And I can bolt into 95%. I'll beat any other 48-year-old on the planet who's, you know, except unless they're really competitive than me. I'll run with the 25-year-olds. I go up to Cal Poly and, you know, jump in on a practice when they're running, you know, sort of, you know, sprints. And I'm not the slowest guy out there. And I didn't do the warm-up. I mean, there's kids on the field I could never beat. But, but I ain't coming in last place with, you know, and I'm not running with the linemen, I'm running with the skilled positions, right? And it's because of the way that I use my body now. And there's such joy in it. Like, there's such unbelievable joy when you don't get tired in the same way. I'll work up a sweat, but I'm not even tired now. Like, you're not pushing the ground. Push, I, I don't like the word push because it's slow. It takes a long time to say it. You're behind, you're all like, push. No, 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 no. Right? You want to just, you want to pulse, bing, bing, right? And look at the animals, the way they do it. It's just a jolt of force and they're gone, right? And the coiling and the, and the, and the rotation, right? To make the center go straight, everything else has to rotate. And rotate is three planes and it starts with, you know, the single cell organisms that were buoyant in water. So they didn't have to deal with gravity in the same way. And all they did was wiggle side to side they created the frontal plane flexion and enough mechanical stress in that medium doing that side bending created the segmented spine and as soon as the amphibians and reptiles came out of the water well now i got the burden of propping myself up okay but i'm still gonna side bend to make progress with the greatest economy think if i'm laying on my belly and i just side bend <gasps> my left hand just went eight inches further and i did no effort Oh, well, now I got to prop it up. And oh, now I did the other side and I'm spending less energy and I have overhand figure eights with my shoulders. And then when I go bipedal, which there's an intermediary stage where you're sort of climbing in the tree to gain the vertical, like just like your kids and mine use the, you know, the, the, the banister in their cradle to stand up and use the coffee table before they were doing it without that assist. And now when I'm bipedal, it's so simple. It's underhand figure eights with the shoulders, overhand figure eights with the hips. It's head over foot with the coiling core. Frontal plane flexion initiates the spinal engine. And then if I really want to go fast where I'm off the ground with both feet, like running, not walking, 
I do the double down pulse to run my fastest. So that's basically the big picture. And so that, that that's all my feedback from what you said. <laughs> yeah. All right. All right. I, I mean, it's, again, I actually could tack on, you, you know, I'd said I, I view the body as joints and muscles and nerves and bones, uh, but also like, like, pressurization you like you were talking last time we talked about on the podcast you're talking about fat and how a bodybuilder two percent body fat can't pressurize and that was like whoa like <laughs> now this makes sense to be a little bit more you know and and um just thinking in in the human body and locomotion in terms of a series of impacts uh and 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 um it's like these pulls or punches uh, I, I know i had ken clark on such a long time ago and he had said he had gotten away from push the ground away moving more into punch which is more of a, it's a quicker, you know, it's just a quicker sounding, uh, more to do with pressurization and uh, fits in with a lot of more of what you're saying than just uh, pushing is a very muscle driven, weight room driven, get your squat up driven um, paradigm. And that's not to say that people don't get, can't get faster doing that. I mean, there's certainly people that do, otherwise nobody would probably ever, well, you think, uh, no one would ever do it. But like to be the, the best you can possibly be in, I love how you said like the joy of, of movement, right? I mean, that's, that's almost become my mission in many ways. And it's almost like I, as a young athlete, and basically when I started getting interested in training age 12 up through 22, I, I would consider age 22, 23 is when I started to get dangerous because I started to kind of get into some of the formal ways. And I'm not saying it's all bad. I mean, I certainly became a better athlete in many respects, but where I, my lifts started really going up and, uh, and, and I could do things better. My standing vertical jump peaked at about age 26, but my high jump had gone down and my maximal, my triple jump had gone down compared to what I was in college. And I didn't know what I was doing. And I, it's almost like, like you said, in the, even in the bones and that's crazy, but it totally makes sense. But it's almost, um, the last few years have really been almost putting the pieces back together of things that I did innately, just subconsciously just did it because your body is designed to do it. Um, before it was kind of like something I probably started coaching out of myself or throwing my body out of balance by putting too high of a premium on supposed lift maxes. And, and the, what you said too is really fascinating. Like, and again, I want athletes to be strong, but not necessarily because we spent all day in the weight room trying to get there. You know, I want to get be strong because we came full circle, but that was the first time I ever heard it said. And it fits with everything my intuition tells me with strength. But like you said, the athlete who is naturally strong it's almost like they sit in this balance of muscle and fascia where if you had to work artificially to get there, and I've always felt that way. I was like, well, the goal is to be to output a lot of force. I want you to output a lot of force, but this, there's something to if you aren't born with that natural horsepower and you're just like, oh, well, so-and-so squats this. I need to do that too. And you like just throw everything into that. Well, you ain't going to move that well <laughs> coming out if you even get there. It's It's... I mean, some people just aren't wired to be able to, I'll put that, unless they throw the squat suit on, you know, the super suit and three belts and wraps and, and get, you know, the Slayer in the background and sniff the ammonia, then maybe, you know, <laughs> then maybe. Uh, again, it's it's all in context, right? But uh, really cool stuff. So, okay, I want to I wanna cover this really quick because I think if we have time to cover it, I want to cover it because we're on the arms. And yeah. uh, asymmetry in our, and, and hopefully yes. within this asymmetry, maybe we can prelude it a little bit. You talked about figure eights, and we talked yes. about pronation, supination, and 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 Tyson Gay supinating um, on the way down. Which supination, for those of you listening who aren't familiar with the terms, because it can be confusing. I, I you know when I first took kines class, it was 
like okay what what like and, and yeah, the way yeah. i think of it is soup is your your palm is facing up like you're uh, holding a can of soup up and then pronation is turning your your palm down towards the ground and i think of like you sometimes you see this in distance races like the photo shot of the cross-country race where they you got the really weak runner who's running with both hands like supinated in this passive supinated like defeated manner both palms up <laughs> and it's like they're done um but uh, people run like but anyways uh, so maybe uh, start before we get into asymmetry full on maybe just a nutshell of, of pronation and supination and how those those figure eights and how those figure eights work and then yes. well then I'll just ask you about asymmetry let's go let's go that way okay so so um, everything if you if you look at the DNA it's a spiral if you look at the actin and myosin it spirals as it contracts and lengthens and so you know look at the origin insertions so I mean everything has this sort of like spiraling movement right so straight isn't really a concept that exists when it comes to the biomechanics of how the body moves and the act of swinging and throwing are sort of the ultimate acts of supination and pronation because you need to resolve with the pronation. Supination is the short and pronation is the long. So if you just take your hands as a listener and sort of just visualize yourself swinging a bat, right? If you're batting righty and you're set up, well, you're, you're started supinated in the right, pronated in the left, and as you come through, don't roll your wrists over in the middle, you know, come through all the way, rotate, and then at the very end, resolve it by rolling the, the wrists over. And so now you've switched the supination to pronation. And just the very act of supinating your right hand will coil your right lat to some extent, because now you're winding that spiral insertion with the rotation of supination. And so when Tyson Gay was taking his right hand and driving it down with a supinating action, he's working against himself in terms of using the spiral. So you're on the wrong side of the spiral when you do that. So if, you, if, you, if you're raising the arm up and forward and you're pronating, you're sort of adding slack to the system. That's what you'd want to do to throw the jab, right, or the cross to get the length. But if you're doing it and running, it's sort of like you're working against yourself. Now the connective tissue is longer than it should be on that stage if you're swinging the arms, which you shouldn't be doing anyway now that we know better, right? So that is sort of the, the supination, pronation, rotation aspect of things. And if, as we sort of get into this asymmetry, let, let me just make one comment about the lifting before we sort of get to the asymmetry. With, with the lifting, I think that what you want to do with the lifting is there there can be a phase when you know the, the weak person is going to build a base of strength or that can certainly be useful right and then what i think you really want to focus on for your athletic lifting is the neural aspect of the lifting with the you know with the with the one reps and and the stuff that's not making you sore to the same extent you're not creating a lot of tissue trauma but you're neurally adapting that you can recruit more right and that's one of the reasons why i love limit force elastic training so much is because it doesn't make you sore and you're 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 limiting into elastic whether you're stretching it or compressing it like compressing on a bosu ball and now the acceleration factor is faster than the gravitational mass factor and so you're stimulating the nervous system to you know recruit the biggest motor units and you know get everything on the fast 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 side to deal with the acceleration so you can and should lift weights and yeah. i don't think either one of us are saying that you shouldn't you just have to be very strategic in what you're doing, and you can't be this troglodyte who, you know, <laughs> is doing just 
you know, okay, yeah, do what you're always done, right? Because that it's it's not sophisticated. It's not targeted, and you're going to make mistakes. Yeah, you need so, the people might need the to get there for some people. The the lift numbers supposedly, you know, the the just getting muscle mass and hypertrophy and eating a ton to get there is the the indiscriminate, more unathletic way. And, and you're saying nervous system first, neural drive first. You have yes. that, and now your body puts that into every every step and every movement, and every sprint. And it's like the inside. You're building it from the inside out, the way the muscle. And yeah, and and, and yeah, you're being very strategic. And I mean, there may be a time for some hypertrophy, especially if the sport calls for it. You mm-hmm. know, if you're yes. a football person, well, okay, you know, we've got time to put 15 pounds on, and okay, you know, it, whatever cost that might have to your vertical jump, it, it's more than made up for mm-hmm. because you're not getting pushed around on the field, mm-hmm. right? So there's all that. But um, so I just wanted to make a note of that, that neither one of us is condoning that you don't lift weights. Right. Right. Stronger is better, provided it's the correct kind of strong. And the neural adaptation is really where you want to invest once you've gotten past the sort of hypertrophy aspect of it. Right. And in in our game, the one that you and I love the best, it's I mean, heck, let's not put an ounce of mass on this person. Let's just make them a lot stronger and more powerful because now they're going to jump through the gym and they don't have to carry all this extra dead weight, right? So anyway, um, asymmetry, right? So, so asymmetry is a fascinating thing, okay? And so it, asymmetry is the rule. It's not the exception, it's the rule because if you look at just the organ system in the body and just the weight, the, the way your weight is distributed, it is asymmetrical. And everybody's going to have a preference in terms of throwing and swinging. Okay, so, and throwing is where it's really the most magnified of all the three, the holy three trinity. So I call the holy three, the holy trinity of, of, of function is the locomotion, the swinging, and the throwing, because that's what the hominid needed, that combination, all three, to turn into us right now and have iPhones and all that stuff. So basically, in terms of the, the symmetry, right, the running is the easiest, right, to, okay, I can run, you know, more symmetrical, there's less of a preferential, and, you know, I can jump this high off my left foot, but I can jump, you know, maybe three inches less off my right foot, right? Swinging, okay, most people are going to have a significant advantage from one side of the plate or, you know, the tennis serve or whatever you're doing. You're going to have a strong preference for which one works better. And then throwing is the biggest one. I mean, you hand a baseball to even some of the pro athletes. They're going to look like, quote, unquote, now that this is not meant as disrespect. It's just one of these things. They're going to look like they throw like a girl, right? Right. And, and again, that I know in the PC world. Yeah, cultural, it's, it's a it's cultural just, statement. We all, we all know. It's that. a cultural statement. Everybody knows what the point I'm making. Yeah. And if you're a girl, don't throw like a girl, right? Yes. So, <laughs> so, so basically, but we still have to honor the fact that it's asymmetrical. And the way that you can look at it is if you, if you sort of break it down into this simplified form, which is oversimplified, but just take, you know, 100 is the total output. And then you have the contribution in terms of the right and the left. And so if you're going to dig a hole, right, and you got two people who are going to dig the hole, if one of them is capable of doing 55% or 5% better than the other one, you're not going to distribute the the labor 50-50, right? You're going to say, okay, well, you can do in the same amount of time, you can do 5% more. So you do 55%, you do 45%. I don't care if it's not fair. I want to dig the hole and get it done, right? Okay. So now what's really interesting is with the asymmetry, and especially with the arms, and this is really becoming apparent with these propulsed pulsers, 
is if you have an asymmetrical arm action like a Walter Payton, where the left arm's gonna cross more to the center than the right, for example, what if, what if your left is sort of the 55% and your right is the 45%, but through an asymmetrical strategy, you can get now 47% out of the right side and you still have the 55% from the left side, well now all of a sudden you're more than 100 because you strategically honored the asymmetry and made the most of it. And so that's what I'm doing with my right hip. My right hip is replaced. <laughs> it's now, you know, ceramic on ceramic with, you know, titanium or whatever the metal is. And my right glute is probably a half inch smaller than my left glute, right? So I'm fundamentally imbalanced. So what I do is I take the, the pulsers and I double down, especially on my right side. So I get the big jolt with my hands favorite on my right side and I don't have time to get all the way over with both of them to the other side to get the double on the other side so I just do the single double down pulse on the other side because I don't have time to go that far and I end up running a lot faster when I do it this asymmetrical way and if some coach were to look at me and say oh you're, you're not symmetrical and you know you're you're taking your leg your arm to the center like you know that's terrible it's like okay dude but it's not as fast right and you look at Chris Johnson run his 4-2-4-40, one hand comes to the center and the other one doesn't, right? Look at Usain Bolt, it's completely asymmetrical. And I didn't need to do some study to figure that out. Look at the way he's breathing, look at the power stroke, you can see it. His right leg is his jolt leg, right? And what an advantage that gives him, what a surprise. When you run the 200 meters and your right foot is more powerful than your left, well, guess what? You have an advantage in the curve that Tyson, you're better than Tyson Gay, whose left foot is his power stroke. And if you look at most athletes, that you know, most athletes are right-handed, most people are right-handed, and most people are left-footed in terms of the plant leg, because they kick with their right and they plant with their left. They're gonna jump, you know, to dunk with their right hand off their left foot. This is just, you know, if you look at the averages, more people are in that camp than others. Not everybody, and some people have cross-lateralized all different ways. But so if we look at that, most people are left foot dominant when it comes to the sprinting, most people. And conventional wisdom would say, oh, well, your left foot's dominant. Well, you should put that in the front block. Well, what if, what if you're like Usain Bolt, whose right foot is dominant, yet you put the right foot in the back block and you jolt off it so that your first step lands on your strong foot, not your weak one? You know, you, don't you want to start the race on your best foot and you're not pushing out of the blocks anyway, you're pulsing out of the blocks and then any good sprinter pulses out of the blocks, they don't push, even though they've been told to push. You look at the back heel, bing, right? Mm -hmm. It goes back and then it goes front, right? And even like in the 40 yard dash, right? You Three point stance is faster than the four point stance, okay? It just is, all right? So, and you're not allowed to do it in track and field, okay? So, yeah, okay, 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 <laughs> right? And this is new information for so many people because they just haven't spent the time that you and I have spent really digging into it. But in a three-point start, what you want to do is the hand that's in the air, what you want to do is you want to cock the wrist as if you were going to throw a dart, put it right near your hip there with the elbow bent just the right amount, and you want to jolt that thing back the same way that you want to pulse down, you want to pulse back with that to create a connective tissue recoil of that hand to jolt your your heel on the back foot forward and send yourself out of the block faster with less effort. This is what you want to do. 
And when you look at Deion Sanders as he's playing Leon Sandcastle and he's running this extraordinary 40-yard dash at the age of like 40-something, right? And I timed it and I did it. Now they do a cut from they do a cut from the angle, so and they take out one step. But even taking out that one step, he's sub four five. He's probably four four at that age, and maybe even four. The guy is so extraordinary, and he has the most uncultivated, non-practice start that you could ever see. His arm is in a negative angle. He's like completely chill and relaxed, and he doesn't have his his up hand, you know, positioned where it could be. But he does the pulse with it because he's the best pulser naturally on the planet, and he jolts out of there exactly the way that you should. Yet, if you go to the big combine shop, well, they're not teaching that. They're te- okay, put that arm back there. Don't put it high in the air because we all know that that's a red flag and they see it move, blah, blah, blah. But you're going to swing it like a big uppercut. Um Sorry, <laughs> now you're now you're using all the muscles. You're not doing the penultimate mm-hmm. process, right? And this is the best of the best. They charge the most money. They have the most people in the NFL and blah blah blah. But they're teaching power presses, and they're teaching. You know, that's the anti-rotation. That you know, anybody who knows me knows that anti-rotation is sort of my you know <laughs> the mm-hmm. pet peeve that I'm going to put an end to. I'm not going to let people keep doing it. But so his. This, this, this action of using the connective tissue is, and, and honoring the asymmetry and understanding the asymmetry and exploiting it for all it's worth. And then if you think, last thing on this, if you think about performance, okay, so let's say you're working with a golfer, okay? The last thing in the world you wanna do who, to a competitive golfer is make their workout 100% symmetrical so that, you know, oh, well, we have to do everything perfectly symmetrical. Well, no, what you wanna do is you wanna thread the needle to exploit the asymmetry advantage and then do enough of the symmetrical work that they can walk around and not get injured. Mm-hmm. Yeah, health performance right. uh, dichotomy, yeah. Right, right, right. I mean, it's sort of like, you know, there, there's a cost for being the best at a sport. Right, so it's not good for you to run a triathlon, right? You know, it's not exactly healthy to, you know, to, to be a boxer. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. like a lot, a lot of these sports, you're paying a price to be the best. And as the trainer, what we want to do is we want to understand and honor the asymmetry, and then perform the remedial, balanced, symmetrical work in a manner that makes them sustainable throughout their athletic career. And when you get to a regular person. It's just a toned down version of that same thing where you're focused on enough symmetrical action, but you're not trying to fix them into some pretty picture just because you have a mental construct that everything has to be perfectly the same on both sides because that's going to be bad for the person biomechanically. If you insist, well, if, if for some reason you know they're, they're somewhat asymmetrical and you insist and you make them symmetrical, well, now you're taking the quote unquote unbalanced wheel and, and you know, sort of putting it in a position of balance where it's just gonna wear out even faster. So it's 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 threading the needle in a fine line, but asymmetry is the that's the rule, it's the law, and there are no exceptions. Nobody's perfectly symmetrical. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast, brought to you by Simply Faster. Yeah. I I really like that. I like uh what you were saying too about like um, just like yeah that performance health thing or with asymmetry I feel like it's kind of like you you need to show the athlete the opposite just enough to keep them healthy because at the at the end of the day it's um 
yeah, being a high elite athlete is, is kind of not good for you on some level in terms of just general health, just general health and longevity and joint wear and tear and well-being. And, um, you know, the more we talk about this, the more I, I always like to make, because we do, our brains work in generalizations um, in the middle of, um, you know, reading through the a neurolinguistic programming book and I was it always makes me just think about how our brains work and how we work and also too and, and I'll mention this too the way that we learn are we visual are we kinesthetic are we auditory obviously if you listen to this it has to be auditory but the way just the, the you know the the pulsers work in is uh, kinesthetic you feel it as opposed to a coach showing you do this and and you can sync up that way but um, it's almost like the way that we were talking you start to think of athletic movement more as this instead of this muscle driven series of straight lines it's in it's a series of pulses it's a series of of jolts that happens in all three planes and it's like once you wrap your mind around that it's like whoa like <laughs> and then you watch the guy run the 424 and it all makes sense you know and you see that crazy angle of the blocks and you don't you aren't the guy running the pro analysis saying well if he just straightened out you know like then then he would be faster it it all starts to make sense and um, one of the cool things, and I'll, I'll leave with this anecdote on my end, just because I the asymmetry of the arms. I I attended a Pat Davidson seminar uh, in the city on rethinking the big patterns, and he was talking about. And I know this is a big PRI thing, and this is why I love postural restoration because they are on the cutting edge. And they talked about the spiraling nature of the human body, and how you have talked about it too, DNA spiraling, and and how our organs uh, are attached to the back of our body through the fascia. And as we run, those organs are kind of bouncing in a circular fashion up and down and that that circular motion actually turns us left a little bit and you also look at like the AIC pattern or the the heart on the left side and our hips are twisted naturally a little bit and scoliosis always goes to the right and basically we're kind of wired to turn left just a little bit and I and that's where I really uh, just in, in, in hearing enough things was like okay well if I put the pulser in the right hand and I can kind of and I because I still want to coach a little pronation and supination I'll put that that I'll just have um, and I, I did this first with my buddy um well I did it and I liked it and then I had my buddy uh, Sean who runs a gym down in San Jose try it and and bearing basically bearing the right hand with the pulser left hand I want you to um, pronate not supinate on the way down and supinate on the way back I think you were saying wind and whip is is what you call it and he ran a, a point three and we had already run with the pulsers in the past and he had run a PR. And then we uh, we did it that way and ran, chopped another three hundredths off his time, and I was like, "Whoa!" And you you look what's it look at the video which I put on Instagram. You see that twisting and whipping and that series of jolts, and it's like a different athlete running. I'm like, "Holy cow, this is awesome!" So um, it's just a cool way to put everything together. Uh, just and it just allows for a bigger understanding of what the body uh, can do. And I know every athlete's different. I mean, it's, I'm still playing around with so many things, right. but that's fun too. I like right. it's it's right. fun to play around and it's fun to find that thing. That unlocks you and so yes um, I'm not so, saying and, everyone and, should, should run exactly that way all the time but anyways yeah it's, it's been so, good. yeah and that, it, that, that you bring up an extremely fascinating point about you know we're still playing around to figure it out and the fact that everybody's gonna have their own unique mm -hmm. uh, spe specificity that's gonna make them faster so I have experimented um, you know since the beginning with the unilateral propulse pulser in you know, only one hand and the best example of this uh, sort of, uh, uh, you know, pulse on one side, swing on the other is Bob Hayes. So there's very little footage of Bob Hayes, but you can find it. And, you know, Bob Hayes had a massive Deion Sanders-like pulse on the left side, okay? 
and then he swung the right hand through. So what you can think of is you sort of think of, okay, I got the power stroke and I got the quick stroke, mm. right? So I got the power and then I got the glide through. And so it's, in a sense, you could think of it as like a gallop. Like, you know, the, the penultimate is the is sort of the glide and then boom, and then glide, boom, glide, boom, glide, right? And so, and, and everybody's gonna have their own unique blend. And so what I think is gonna end up happening at the quote unquote end of the day, as we begin to learn more and more with this, is that athletically speaking, in the sports where you'll be allowed to, you know, wear them, like NFL sticky gloves, picture, you know, Picture, picture what I'm making now, right? Where NFL sticky gloves have the cartridges and track and field. Who knows if it's allowed or not? You, you got to train with them because they're going to give you the pattern, make you stronger, all the connective tissue. But if we're allowed to run with them, well, then maybe, oh, maybe I want 6.7 ounces on my right hand on this, you know, glove. And maybe I only want 4.3 on my left hand. And I mean, so as you get more and more nuanced and you start, you know, grading yourself with the clock, right? You're going to find out what works the best. Because if, you know, if you look at the mean average of the times that you can run, the clock will not lie. And so, you know, if you start to find a mean average of, oh, when I put this much weight in this hand and this one in the other, well, I'm generally faster. You know, that population of, you know, touch points on the graph is just faster. Well, then that is faster. And so we're going to see that. And what I mean, all of the, the interesting exploration, I mean, we are literally at the dawn of a new beginning in terms of how the entire world is going to run. And it's going to happen so much so that the entire construct of swinging the arms will go away. And then the generations to come will not have to study this as much as they will just absorb it. Because that will be a new construct. And just like we're speaking English, which we didn't study to, to learn how to do it effectively, the kids aren't going to have to study. And with the sort of, you know, this evolving, okay, well, you know, we keep on getting better athletes, keep on getting, you know, marathon was just shattered recently. Two hours, one minute, yeah, and 39 crazy. seconds. I mean, so we're 100 seconds away from breaking the two hours. And we're going to do it. I guarantee it. Mm -hmm. and, and, and now the challenge to doing it now is that the top coaches, right, they're very guarded with their athletes. Right? They, you know, I happen to know some people in some places where, you know, even within the same organization, you know, the, the guy who coaches the distance guys and he's got these elites doesn't let the other guy who works with the sprinters talk to his distance mm -hmm. guys because, you know, da, 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 da. So, all we're going to need is some of the elites to sort of say, hey, okay, this guy Weck knows how to make us faster and it's going to change, you know, because the distance runners, since they're not doing it five times per second, they're doing it, you know, 180, you know, steps per minute or so, you know, it's, it's, it's not a very fast three, three times per second, three point whatever times per second. They don't have the burden of turning it over like a sprinter, so they do the double down pulse and some of them do like a wing-like pulse, which is a different thing more complicated and i'll get into that another time double down is very easy and simple and Eliud kipchange the world record marathon guy he does a double down pulse right? <laughs> right and he does it exceptionally well but he's never trained it and now when he trains it we'll do it even better and another thing that marcus santi who is the he, he was the 200 meter gold medalist at in the in the master's track at i think you know 44 years old i think 
And so top of his age group, he won the 200-meter gold. He is now faster because he's been training with, with the stuff that I've taught him. And he, it's, it's very interesting. He can, he can now run the time that he ran, just sort of show up at the track. Oh, they're having a high school meet. It's an open. Oh, okay, boom. You hop in and run the same time they ran a gold in, you know, a couple years earlier, right? And what he says, and it's true, is you can train this upper body training with the intensity of an all-out sprint without wearing yourself out. And so basically when people say, well, how often should I train with these propulse pulsers? I say, oh, as often as you possibly can without overdoing it so that you're laying down this connective tissue, you're building the pattern. And I'll do little intervals like, you know, we'll, we'll do 240 beats per minute and we'll do it for 30 seconds. Okay, and then we'll rest 30 seconds and then we'll do 260 and rest 30 seconds and then we'll do 280 and then we'll do 300. And 300 is about all you need to get to for top sprint speed because that's five steps a second. And you're not even going to hit five seconds or five steps per second, really, unless you're in the rarefied air. Tyson Gay doesn't do that fast, right? And the guys who do it aren't as fast as Tyson Gay anyway. So, and for, for like uh, multi direction sports, the pulse is even more advantageous because you got all the breaks and stops and cuts. And every time you stop, you get to jolt out of it as opposed to push out of it. And for those, if you micro pulse faster than 300, now you have cheetah's tail pulsing where you can put double pulses in, like, you know, did it. <laughs> and like, and then for MMA application, it's huge. Dominic Cruz is the first fighter to train with these. And Diego Sanchez is right around the corner. And it's, it enhances the footwork and enhances the body movement and enhances the punching power. Because like you said, if you think of movement as a series of pulsing actions where it's, 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 it's this phasic thing where it's all out power that takes less effort and then it's float and find the ease and power float, power float, that yin yang approach mm -hmm. leads to better movement. Yes. And it's, counter, it's counterintuitive, but again, because the results rule and ultimately the opinions are irrelevant if the clock says different, right? So we have to always go with what the clock says, the scale says, the measuring tape says, like that's what we have to go with at the end of the, or at the beginning of the day, you have to go with that. And so because we're able to effectively prove it with the clock so that you can answer the question like, well, where is the science on these things? I wanna see peer reviewed research on these, you know, propulsed pulsers, I say, okay, well, you can hold your breath and wait for it because I'm not going to do the research. <laughs> I'll participate, but somebody else is going to pay for it. I'm not going to do it. And I have the clock. That's about as scientific as it gets. You know, run without them. Okay, now run with them. <laughs> All right, do it again. Do it again. Do it again. You're faster every time. Okay, do, do you still need to look at the peer-reviewed research? Or is that going to come? And did Fosbury have the, the research? To say, hey, you you know, do my technique, or did it just sort of demonstrate itself as superior? And then, oh yeah, well now let's study it. Oh wow, the reason it works is because the center of mass doesn't have to go over the bar when I do it that way. And so now you're able to look at it through the lens of common sense, which what you said not too long ago about like, okay, well now you see the four two four forty, and it all makes sense, as opposed to what was being said before, which is that, oh, this lateral sway is all bad and you gotta be neutral and you gotta do this, that, the other thing, where if you step back, it doesn't make sense. And like I started out in the beginning of this thing, like 
look, it's common sense that why would I want to raise one arm up before I hit the ground with maximum load? Like it just doesn't make sense to do that. So why, why are you coaching that? Like, you know, just if you stop and just ask that one simple question, the answer couldn't be more obvious. Yeah. Maybe we can all, um, we can really find a lot of it down into the DNA and the yin and yang. And I think those are two really cool concepts that stick with me in movement. So, well, cool. David, that's all the time that I got for today. Yeah. But thank you for sharing right, the thoughts well, this, and yeah. uh, keep keep changing the world of speed with what you're doing. And uh, really appreciate your time, man. So many good things to keep pondering. So appreciate it. Joel, you're, you're, you're fantastic. I love your podcast. And, uh, you know, we're, we're changing the world together, my friend. That does it for another episode hope you enjoyed that one again um i just feel like it's layers of the onion like we're, we're constantly putting on layers and ways to watch athletes move observe how athletes move and coach athletes to be the best they can be as well as having the joy of knowing your body could do something you maybe didn't think it could do before anyways uh we'll be back next week with another great guest uh, don't forget to visit our sponsor simplyfaster.com suppliers of high-end training technology also have an awesome blog and they've just been an awesome sponsor for this show. So be sure to check them out. Finally, if you enjoyed the show, please don't hesitate to leave us a rating or review on iTunes or Stitcher. I said that as the last thing, so if you have nothing else to do after this, which I doubt because if you're driving, you probably have another episode queued up, um, but maybe stop and take a break and shoot us a rating or review. I'd totally appreciate it. All right, have a good one.